Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Energy Talks listeners, I've got a bit of a treat today. I'm going to be talking to Gregor McDonald, who's a, an American freelance journalist who covers cities, climate, and energy. He's also the author of The Gregor Letter about the economics of the energy transition. He's joining us from Portland, Oregon. And we are going to have not so much an interview, but a conversation about the energy transition, the state of energy journalism today, and all sorts of other interesting tidbits. So welcome to the interview, Gregor. It's wonderful to be here with you. And as much as I enjoy being in Portland, Oregon, a beautiful place, I sure would like to see uh, the parts of British Columbia that, that you're in. Maybe someday we can make that happen. Well, I'll tell you, if you ever come to Parksville, you're you're always welcome uh, okay. to stop in and we'll have a beer or a coffee or, or something and show you some, great. some island hospitality. Now, I'm really into, you know, and I follow you on Twitter and I, I read some of the, the stuff that you you write. And I I, I recognize a, a fellow energy transition, uh, you know, not somebody who pays attention, who's really interested in this, gets the global context. You write, of course, mostly in the, about the American approach to that context. That's that's great. So, but let's start, because we were having a little chat off air before we started, about energy journalism. And this is, I look down uh, south of the border, and I see a really, really dynamic energy journalism uh, profession. There are big names like Dave Roberts, uh, who used to be at Vox and is now with uh, Canary Media, I think. Canary Media all by itself uh, is important. Uh, I can think of another, a number of other names and yourself included. And I look at Canada and, you know, I do, I do, I look at the global energy transition, try to explain it to Canadians, uh, particularly Albertans, the Texans of, of Canada. And I don't know anybody who does what I do. There's lots of lots of people like you who do what I do in the U.S. Very, maybe none other than me in Canada. So, give me your take on you know the state of energy journalism in the United States. Um, energy journalism in the United States has come a long way. Um, it, it 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 too had to progress and and evolve over the past twenty years. If you go back a couple of decades. Um, I think energy was treated uh, as as an appendage to the economy. Uh, uh, the economics profession uh, didn't take energy perhaps as seriously as it does now. There was just less writing and less coverage about uh, energy if you go back, you know, twenty years. And I think the um, the experience of China's industrialization and how that led to a boom in commodities and eventually a, a kind of punishing uh, increase in the price of oil between 2000, 
2005 and 2008 and the way that resolved into a financial crisis, um, I think that shifted people's baseline. And uh, it was right around that time that I started writing publicly about energy and oil in particular, because oil and coal are are the two energy sources that I really uh, got, got started with as a as a writer. And I think we haven't, you know, we haven't looked back. Um, I won't try to explain uh, Canada's situation. Um, Canada, like Australia, is of course a, a historically a commodity producer, and and of course back in that period that I referred to in the in the first decade of this century, the Canadian tar sands were were regarded as being uh, a unique if not wonderful and safe asset because they they resided in a, a peaceful, stable country. Yes, it was a form of oil manufacturing rather than oil extraction. But but that, you know, Canadian Oil Sands Trust was was regarded um, as sort of like a widows and orphans uh, in investment. And uh, of course we're we're now in a very different place. Um, uh, I I cover both the American scene, but I I I cover the global I cover the global scene uh, pretty much, and of course we're just in a brand new world now where um, other energy sources, clean sources, and in, in power at least in electricity are are moving forward. So yeah, it's true. I mean, there really wasn't much coverage twenty years ago. Now there's a whole ecosystem. So you have bloggers, newsletter writers like myself. Uh, many newsletter writers like myself were more formally journalists and so forth. You mentioned a bunch of good people. Uh, Dave Roberts, of course, I've, <laughs> I feel like I've been traveling alongside Dave, you know, for the past uh, decade. You mentioned Canary Media. I think Jeff St. John uh, at Canary Media, I, I consider Jeff to, to be almost peerless in his ability to uh, explain uh, energy transition. And then just to wrap this up, you know, we're not only are we in a different world, but we're, we're in a world that requires uh, an array of domain expertise. You can't just can't just be an expert in oil or gas. You can't just be an expert in solar. You've got to be an expert now in transmission and algorithmic uh, tactics that are going to have to do with the power grid and so forth, uh, time shifting, uh, when people decide to charge their cars when they don't. So, you know, we're we're now kind of moving into an age of energy technology. Um, and and that that means that there's a lot more opportunity for people to develop that domain expertise and then you know provide that value to readers. So that, that's a really good point. I, I often make the argument that uh, uh, technology energy as a technology is very, very different than energy as a commodity. Yes, right. And this is not well understood. I spent a lot of time uh, writing and you know interviewing experts about about Alberta because Alberta is thirty eight percent of Canada's uh, GHG emissions, but mm -hmm. also the, uh, the uh, source of the the biggest uh, export sector, oil and gas in mm -hmm. Canada, it dwarfs uh, autos, which are next. And and so it's uh, you know all all roads to the energy transition in Canada run through Alberta, and the uh all of you know almost all of the journalists that i can think of who cover energy in alberta or cover alberta from other provinces 
particularly Toronto and Ottawa, you know, they're, they're really, they're really oil and gas guys. That that's by and large what it is. Yep. And there's, and so what happens is the conversation, the energy conversation in Canada tends to be very, we, we're a great bunch of nasal gavers, naval gazers. We're very parochial, very provincial and inward looking. And we, we're not talking about this, you know, the, the global context of these things. And so I just give you an example. Uh, yesterday, the Alberta premier, Danielle Smith, uh, appointed a five member uh, advisory panel to chart Alberta's long-term energy future. They're all small oil and gas players. All the people yeah. who sit on that panel, you know, and my criticism in my column and the radio interviews I've done is you couldn't find an expert on renewables or hydrogen mm -hmm. or battery storage or on and yeah. on and on and on. But, but that decision reflects the approach that many people in Canada have. And it's certainly true in Alberta. It's kind of writ large there, but it's also true across the country. And it's the the failure to be more, you know, global in our perspective, I think, starts with journalism, because we aren't telling the sto stories enough. I mean, you know, energy media is one small independent news organization. There's only so much we can do. Only, And without telling those stories, the public doesn't understand as well as they should. And if the, when the public doesn't understand, that restricts the political space that politicians have for policy. It is yeah, there's, Let's go ahead. Yeah, there's, there's kind of a bit of path dependency going on. So I want to put Australia in the same category as, as Canada, um, a large uh, country land mass wise uh, with a much smaller, less dense uh, population, historically a raw commodity producer, both countries are actually uh, doing good things to pursue the energy transition. Maybe Australia is a little bit ahead. I mean, rooftop solar um, in in the populated territories of New South Wales are, is really off the charts. Uh, Australia has a mega project that's uh, coming together in northern the Northern Territories that's going to ship uh, wind and solar, a massive amount of wind and solar power by underwater uh, cable to the Indonesian uh, archipelago. Even when all those uh, projects come to fruition as they, as they already are, Australia politics and, and the Australian uh, government will still have to be making policy adjustments around copper mining and coal mining and, and natural gas, because those are the legacy uh, incumbent industries and and the scale to which they grew is just very you know it's just very large and that's going to be true for for Canada too so it's going to be more like a concurrent track and you know what let's let's put the United States in there as well because uh, again going back to the financial crisis when the punishing price of oil um, really affected uh, Western economies in two thousand five you know to two thousand eight. The United States was only producing about five million barrels a day of of petroleum liquids. We're up we're up to twelve million barrels a day of crude oil production, and another five million barrels a day of 
of liquids of, of natural gas uh, liquids as as you can also see we've become a force a major force in LNG exports again just go back 15 years we had one LNG export facility in the state of Canada and now we have a whole new uh, industry here so, and yet we too are pursuing uh, the energy transition pretty aggressively now I mean we've the the build out of wind and solar over the last decade has been enormously impressive. Uh, the United States is on course to to hit to have wind and solar compose fifteen percent of our annual uh, electricity supply. That that's you know I remember when we were back at six and seven and looking over to Europe and Europe was at fifteen, sixteen, seventeen percent. I wondered if we would ever get there. So this right. two track problem. Markham is is a theme. We'll talk about incumbents in a minute, and uh, and U.S. Inflation Reduction Act and some of the other acts yeah. uh, that are uh, designed to promote clean energy technologies. I I can't couldn't let your your Freudian slip uh, go because Canadian. I know my Canadian listeners picked it up. You you talked about the state of Canada, and I think you meant the state maybe of Texas or California. California is probably what you meant. No, I meant. I meant the country of I meant the country of Canada and the country of Australia. That's what I. Uh, oh, oh, did I say? I see. You said the state of, and I, you probably meant the you know state. Oh, of maybe I didn't state. mean California when I was when I was referring. I'm not sure when I said that in our in our conversation, but that's sorry. not a problem. Journal journals are journals are allowed to do have a slip of the tongue, yeah. particularly when they're writers. Yeah. Right? I mean, we we writers, we 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 get yeah. a special dispensation on when we're doing radio and and podcasts and, and things sure. in case we make uh, make a slip. Well, look, I want to talk about the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act because I've done a fair amount of work over the last year on industrial strategy and policy, of which okay. the the uh, Inflation Reduction Act is an example. There's a an amazing amazing speech from November by uh, U.S. Secretary Commerce Secretary Gina uh, Riomundo who just lays it out. I mean, she explains in explicit detail what the challenge is, uh, which is primarily the uh, uh, the, the challenge, the competition with, with China. Uh, China just, uh, I think, well, I'll, I'll step back for a sec. I remember reading in, in uh, by President Biden's 2019-2020 campaign literature, he said, look, man, China has overtaken us on clean energy technology. And he used electric vehicles as, as the example. And he said, if you elect me, I will put us back in, we will regain leadership, the leadership in this in this field. And by 2030, we will be number one in clean energy, clean energy technologies. And I think the the background to the US Inflation Reduction Act is that sometime, I don't know when, maybe 2018, 2019, whenever it was, but Biden's comments reflected an awakening in the U.S. It was like, hold on a second. We, China has now become this power, an industrial power that we used to be, like coming out of the Second World War. That was the U.S. That's now China. And if we're talking now about ship, the energy transition and, and having to manufacture solar panels and wind turbines and electric vehicles, and if we're not in that game, we're, we're seeding... Our, our industrial might seeds and then of course political might follows follows mm -hmm. that and I th and I think that there was a change a sea change in thinking 
amongst leaders, you know, American leader, business leaders, political leaders, and so on, that then was reflected in, in Biden's campaign and then showed up in the U.S., you know, in the Inflation Reduction Act in, in August. Is that a reasonable hypothesis? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I, I'd like to add a couple of things to that. Um, a, an ancillary way to understand the Inflation Reduction Act is to is to just absorb the fact that for about 10 to 15 years prior to the IRA, the, the US really only used one tool to affect three industries, the wind industry, the solar industry, and the electric vehicle industry. And that tool was a tax credit. So it was either a tax credit for an individual consumer on an electric vehicle, or it was a tax credit to companies building and deploying utility scale uh, wind and solar. And then states had tax credits or incentives also for individual consumers to put solar on their, on their roofs. I tend to see the Inflation Reduction Act as, as both comprehending that those tools were too basic and too blunt, while at the same time you had a convergence across the political uh, spectrum, you had a political sort of awakening about industrial policy. This, and so that's your piece that you just that you just said. And so the IRA um, has many different fingers, many different tentacles, and and most of these tentacles work in a double-sided way. They 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 there's an awareness of the global supply chain and the extent to which maybe america wants to be less dependent on that on that supply chain by the by uh, just i wanted to mention iea in paris just came out with an energy technology report and they they lay out in graphic terms how how much everyone in the world is is currently dependent on certain areas of the world for for wind blades for solar panels for heat pumps um for electrolyzers it mostly goes back to you know to china and so and so the inflation reduction act spreads its wings way beyond electric vehicles solar and 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 wind power it gets into transmission it gets into batteries it gets into hydrogen and and a very significant uh, price incentive per kilogram uh, for clean hydrogen to get to get the price of clean hydrogen down competitive to to hydrogen that's currently made with natural gas, what might be called gray hydrogen and so forth. And so the the IRA looks to me not like it looks like both a a a way to resolve the previous decades um, lack of uh, specificity and care, but it also feels like a beginning. It also feels, and, and it has companion legislation, right? Because we have a CHIPS Act with, with um, semiconductors. And if you just, Mark, if you just look at the map of the battery production facilities that are sprouting up like flowers uh, east of the Mississippi in the United States, and in many 
red states, states that are, and that's a political term here in the US, these are mostly Republican states. And it's been fascinating to watch uh, Republican controlled states uh, signal in one sense that they're not interested in the Biden agenda, but then another sense, oh, they're sure happy to get those new factories and jobs. It couldn't be happier to be at the ribbon cutting ceremony. So, so the IRA even uh, travels across political fault lines in a very interesting and clever way. And that has real potential long-term impact, you, you transformative, transformative impact. The uh, IEA report you're talking about that came out last month was uh, called Technology Perspectives 2023. Yes. And the part of it that really sticks with me is the IEA saying that the uh, the building out of the industrial capacity to build the solar panels and the wind turbines and the battery plants and all of those things that go into the clean energy economy, it's a new industrial revolution. Yes. It's it's actually on the same, on par with the 18th century uh, industrial revolution that kicked off, you know, basically modern life uh, all those years ago. Uh, and that is no small thing that I, it, that's a, a clarion call to anybody who's listening that we are, this is the status quo has been disrupted. I mean, if it wasn't obvious, it hasn't been obvious over the last 10 years, boy, it, when the IEA says we're in a, a new industrial revolution, then it's, it's patently obvious. Yes. And, and there's a, there's a critically important phenomenon and feature of what it means to move to transition from uh, raw energy extraction, uh, mining and drilling in the ground, to manufactured equipment, which which becomes uh, energy capturing devices, wind and solar energy capturing devices, batteries are of course energy storage devices. Uh, the bigger, better, faster, more efficient transmission is a way to conserve the energy that you that you produce. And this, the critical feature is that that world, less like the world of mining and, and, and extraction, that world, this new manufacturing world, adheres to what's called the learning rate. And, uh, you know, I've got a 16-year-old son who's very interested in economics, and he wanted me to explain the learning rate to him. And I said, well, that's the first gasoline-powered lawnmower that was ever developed is the most expensive lawnmower that's ever been built on the planet. It probably took millions of dollars and and thousands of, of person hours to, to construct. And then once they once they build the 10 millionth lawnmower, it costs the manufacturer very little and now they're making profit. This is exactly how wind, solar are already working. And this is how batteries will work. And this is how transmission will work. And this is exactly how we'll get the, the cost of hydrogen down through the learning rate, you know, we, we don't, the world doesn't have that many uh, uh, electrolyzers, right? They're a very expensive piece of capital equipment. But when we, when we build the 10,000th electrolyzer, it's, it's not going to cost that much. So, so that's, yes, an industrial revolution in, in many respects, and especially in that one, it's especially in that efficiency capturing phenomena. Just a little background on that. Uh, where that comes from is, uh, I think his name was Jim Wright. He was an aeronautical engineer, worked for McConnell Douglas back in sure. the, 
1936, he wrote this paper and he, he said, look, uh, every time we, we double the production of a plane, our labor costs drop 15%. And then that became known as Wright's Law. And then over the years, economists have broadened that to other industries so that any time the production of a technology of a, of a good it doubles, there will be X percentage reduction yes. in the cost of making that. And and so if you look at the learning curve and the learning curve for batteries and, and solar and, and wind, and they all look the same. Mm -hmm. so over 12 or 13 years, they just fall yeah. off a cliff. And then it's, they... it's, it's amazing, isn't it? It's the same yep. curve. But the, here's the key thing. What that means is that as like the wind and solar, so the IEA says that 90, 95% of all new power generation in the next decade or whatever is going to be renewables, the more you deploy it, the cheaper it becomes. That's right. And so the question then becomes, I know, you know, people like uh, Tony Siba look out into the future and say the marginal cost of producing a, a megawatt of hour of electricity will be almost nothing. That's right. And so when costs fall that low, it literally transforms your society. And if you look, you know, I wrote my master's thesis. My poor energy talks listeners, they hear me <laughs> talk about my master's <laughs> thesis all the time. But <laughs> you have it. So I'm going to inflict it on you. Uh, you know, basically, I uh, was looking at the transition from steam and horses uh, in Saskatchewan farming from 1900 to 1930, the transition to uh, oh, power, power farming. You know, tractors and, yes. and 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 the internal combustion engine, mm -hmm. and the, in the uh, in the early twenties, when these things were starting to appear, uh, there was a, a fierce debate in the farm press, and people were arguing about the ultimate long term effect of these because, of course, if you if you had a quarter section that you homesteaded, but then you got a tractor and a combine, now you needed two quarter sections or maybe three quarter sections. And they said, where will this trend stop? Eventually, one day you'll have rural areas and there's nobody going to be live there. And sure enough, 80 years later, 100 years later, mm -hmm. that's exactly what happened. Rural areas have been, are basically depopulated. Farms are 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 yeah. acres. You know, yes. two people with automated equipment can farm them with big capital, you know, yes. capital equipment. And and it transformed and everybody flocked to the cities and, and, you know, there was the urbanization trend after world war two. It, it, that was part of the, the making of modern civilization and Siba and others have argued that we, once energy becomes that cheap and, and then of course we have all the other benefits of clean and, you know, we clean up the environment and biodiversity can recover and all of those things. But we'll see about that. But we may be on the cusp of a revolution in how we live as human beings on this planet. And I, I'm kind of excited about that, I got to tell you. Well, the, your storytelling kind of reveals something. One of the harder parts of energy transition, let's just go back to transition from wood to coal. Coal uh, had at least three times the energy content of wood uh, and some coal had four times the energy content of wood. So that's like a that's like a a supernova explosion of available energy to society. And hence, you have the industrial revolution. I've always argued, without coal, you could have intellectual revolutions, you could have social revolutions, you could have other sorts of uh, tactical uh, 
revolutions in commerce, but you're just not going to have an industrial revolution without without uh, coal. It's the it's the the ingredient that if you remove it from the equation, oops, uh, suddenly we don't have history the way the way it was. So the but what was difficult was was transitioning the broader ecosystem. Because you see, the broader ecosystem was set up for for wood. That's how people's homes were set up for heating. Nothing was set up for coal. Uh, this is a this is somewhat similar to where we are now with with wind and wind and solar, um, and 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 the harder attempt at the at the harder to abate uh, sectors. So just to give one example of that, when China built out its power grid on the back of coal during its industrial revolution. What it surely didn't contemplate, and and none of us contemplated in the 1990s when this was happening, is that that power grid system would actually become the distribution system for what would would become new wind and solar. And so one of the one of the really nice things about wind and solar and its build out is that it has a ready made distribution system to plug to plug into. Harder to abate sectors like heating in industrial applications concrete steel making other sorts of manufacturing that's where it gets tougher because i've i've done a lot of work on hydrogen for example in the last uh, year and a half two years hydrogen has amazing potential and possibilities there just currently isn't a hydrogen you know distribution system so i agree with you markham we it's somewhat of an uneven revolution um but but i also think that wind and solar are already getting down to those price levels where that you were hinting at, you know, that getting down to those price levels where it's becoming, it's becoming a no-brainer to build them. And I would just want to add one of the reasons that wind and solar are so cheap is the speed to actual deployment. As every as any venture capitalist or business person will tell you, the faster you get your money-making machine up and running, the faster you start getting paid back on your original investment. And uh, uh, there was a a very important project in India called Kamuthi, which is like a half a gigawatt or a three quarter gigawatt solar plant. It went up in less than a month, sorry, in less than a year. And it was partially because there was so much available uh, affordable labor. And this is, I think this is particularly exciting for the non-OECD nations. They have a lot of labor and they can use that labor to throw up wind and solar much more, you know, much more quickly. So. I agree. That, that that argues against uh, an assumption that the oil and gas industry here in, in Canada holds dear, and I suspect it's true of uh, of the industry in the U.S. And that is that uh, demand global demand for oil and gas is not going to drop as fast as critics think because the uh, developing countries, non OECD countries. They will they will grow and their their growing demand will backfill the declining demand in the in the wealthier countries. But as the example or the story that you just told illustrates that a lot of those countries now are looking at at and going, well, if I want energy, why would why would I continue to import coal, oil? And mm -hmm. gas, those are all expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, they they uh, they come with externalities. In the case of all of them, uh, and we're and we're committed. You know, we're all talking about you know reducing emissions and for, for the for climate purposes. But more than anything, it, it's their security issue. 
we don't have to when you're importing what Russia, what Russia has taught everybody is is yes. that energy can be weaponized. Yes. And you don't want to put yourself in a position where you're the victim of that weaponization. And and so they're they're looking and they go see okay well you know why we'll produce energy domestically uh, in our country what what are our options well they wind and solar are the two biggest ones right now I don't doubt that down the road we'll see uh, geothermal uh, is making a lot of progress uh, who knows a couple of decades down the road we might see fusion uh, I mean tidal uh, power generation there's there's all sorts of uh, wildcard technologies that are in the pipeline. That that ha at least hold promise. But let's talk about hydrogen because I'm I'm really keen to get your view. If you, okay. it doesn't sound like you agree with the critics, but I've interviewed some of the critics, and they're going, "Well, look, it's, you know, the energy efficiency of creating hydrogen is way too low, or using hydrogen is way too low, and it's really hard to move around, and you know." Everything that you want to do with hydrogen, you can pretty much do with with electricity and batteries. Anyway, why why bother? Like we just shouldn't put another cent into into uh, scaling up the hydrogen economy. But based on your work, what's your take on that? Uh, my take on hydrogen is so there's a phrase that goes, "Hydrogen is the Swiss Army knife of of energy resources." It 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 implies an attractive, wide open future in which hydrogen can be used for myriad things. Um, I'm I'm less convinced about that about that concept. What I am positive about initially, or let me just put it this way: I think the first uh, chapter in the hydrogen story globally will be the manufacture of clean hydrogen from uh, wind, solar, nuclear power, and hydro. Uh, and maybe there might be some natural gas or uh, coal in the power local power grid mix. But, but let's just say, um, if you were to deploy electrolyzers in the state of California, and you were to use those electrolyzers to make hydrogen safe for both short haul uh, flights, with in turboprop planes, and you were to use them for local industry, looking for heat to maybe manufacture small metal parts and so forth, you would you'd be drawing on a grid that's exceptionally clean already. That's already twenty five percent wind and solar, and has a, a another ten to fifteen percent hydro. And so I think the first chapter of of hydrogen is getting it manufactured on site near a demand near a demand center. And I think that you can simply replicate that from state to state or country to country where, where you can use, you know, I mean, for example, I, I did some reporting on uh, Volvo used as an experiment, the first green steel. And, and this steel was manufactured without metallurgical coal. It was manufactured with hydrogen to create the high heat and was it more expensive? Yes, but not that much more expensive. Is it, you know, is there a huge factory that's ready to crank out uh, thousands of tons of, of green steel each year? Not yet, but you know, we we've proven the concept. We can we can do it. So I think hydrogen is going to be um, that's going to be the first chapter. The second chapter is going to require hydrogen pipelines, and I believe Europe. 
actually is already at work on on considering hydrogen pipelines. That's what hydrogen needs a pipeline like natural gas. It needs it needs a pipeline so that users all along the string can can tap it. But just on the real on the basics, Markham, I absolutely am confident that we will produce green hydrogen without a government incentive, without a subsidy, at a price per kilogram that's down around, I don't know, 350 US is what it needs to be at. You know, that's the current US government subsidy price. But we'll be producing that without a subsidy um, within within 10 years and probably less than that. It's we just need to deploy electrolysis. We have to get that learning curve going. So let me give you my take on this. There's a, an economist in Canada called Jason Dion. He works for the Canadian Climate Institute. And he wrote mm -hmm. a report last year, it might have been 2021. And he talked about two kinds of, of technologies. Uh, 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 SureBet. Uh, SureBet technologies are like wind and solar. They're already sure. they're competitive. They're commercial. They're, you know, just let them go. They don't need any subsidies. And then there are wildcard technologies, and that might be, you know, hydrogen would be one of them, CCUS would be another one, and small modular reactors would be another. And his argument there is that these are technologies that maybe aren't competitive yet. They aren't, uh, you know, they haven't, they haven't scaled up. There's maybe still some technical issues that have to be resolved with them, but they show enough promise that we should continue investing in them. Mm -hmm. we, should, we should explore them. Yeah. And so uh, when I, 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 I think of hydrogen as a as a wild card technology still at this point, but you know, last week I was in Edmonton and they had a, a one day hydrogen summit, and I, you know, so I I talked to the uh, the city of Edmonton's uh, manager for their uh, for their bus fleet, and they're they're testing out a, a hydrogen bus, and I said, well, what's the advantage here? Like you don't, he, you know, he talked about how difficult it is to get fuel to get because they haven't got the infrastructure in place yet so that's that's expensive and he said yeah but you know what we have battery electric buses and they don't work at 30 below or they don't work very well at this point and we're okay. worried and in the future they're not going to get much better on that on that account he said whereas hydrogen we think will work really well in a, in a cold climate and therefore even if it's a little more expensive uh for fuel even if it's a little more expensive on the capital cost We'll recoup it in because we have fewer breakdowns and we have better service okay. and all of those. So my take on this is if this is a wildcard technology and we're seeing big municipalities step up to test it out, if we're seeing private industry step up to develop the technology, to develop the, the hydrogen buses and, and fleets of uh, uh, you know uh, trucking companies that are willing to take on and test these, uh, you know, do pilots with uh, with hydrogen semi trucks, and or as you mentioned, uh, you know, like maybe steel manufacturers that want that they're going to try this out. As long as as long as we're on a learning curve, or as long as private capital is coming to the table, and then I don't mind public money uh, uh, crowding in that private capital for this, and it may be. I'm it may be at the end of the day that hydrogen only has very, very specific applications. Yes. You know, maybe that's the case. Yes. But we won't know if we don't try. That's right. And I think there's been plenty of advancement in the technology over the last few years that to justify continuing to try. And Absolutely. So, 
Yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at on this. And I know that that uh, no doubt uh, 20 minutes after I post this interview, I'm going to get some angry uh, comments on social media. But, you know, th I think that's a, a fair approach to all of these wildcard technologies, whatever they be. We should continue to develop them until it's clear that it's no longer feasible or economic or whatever practical to do so. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not that positive about hydrogen being deployed in the transportation sector in any broad way, but hydrogen is being deployed in the short haul trucking segment in places like the port of uh, Los Angeles. Hydrogen fuel cells are probably gonna be deployed in short haul uh, aircraft. And there may be something about hydrogen fuel cells that gives a large vehicle more power. Uh, and that's, I'm not, going to attest to that from an energy physics standpoint. But some of the reporting that I've done on that, it, the industries are interested in hydrogen fuel cells for heavy vehicles. You mentioned the bus. There's probably some applications there. For 90% for of the world's electric passenger vehicles, it's going to be it's going to be an, an EV battery. It's not going to be hydrogen and that type of, of uh, transportation. But I agree with you. We Why not explore? I mean, we're we're losing. I mean, the world is suffering losses from climate change already. So you know, it's people get penny wise and and pound foolish, right? You know, they they don't think about losing a dollar, but they worry about spending five cents on exploring hydrogen. You know, it's it's just a we're just very bad at at risk reward propositions as human beings. We're not we're not really good at that. So see, I would argue that the Americans actually are pretty smart. Uh smarter than Canadians when it comes to this. <laughs> what well what the America what what your what your people have done, uh -huh. uh, Gregor, uh -huh. it is that the uh the federal government has subsidized uh basic science and then the uh the initial uh, R D uh, development of technologies that they basically de-risk them and then they and then they bring them out and I mean, the internet you know darpa's funding of the internet uh early years that sort of thing sure. nasa the military uh department of energy i mean there's all kinds of examples and and they de-risk it to the point where the private sector can now crowd in and go, okay, we're ready to commercialize this. That's what we do is we commercialize these new technologies. You did all the science, you did all the R and D, you got it off the bench. You, you got it into a pilot project yep. or a demonstration project. Yep. Okay, man, we're ready to go now. Mariana Mazzucato uh, does a brilliant job of explaining how that process all works. And she always says, don't, don't listen to what the Americans tell you about economic policy. They natter on about, free markets and capitalism and all that kind of crap look at what they do and what they do is they use the power of the state and the financial resources of the state to fund all of that de technology development de-risk it and then the private sector picks it up and runs with it and in canada we don't do that we do a really really bad job well, so i what i see and this gets us back to the inflation reduction act is America returning to that model in a big way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and you know, we're we're a unique economy in the sense that, you know, our GDP output for for what for a single economy is is pretty massive. I think it's up around 20 trillion now. And Canada is just a much smaller um economy. You don't you don't have you don't throw off the kind of wealth um 
that we that we throw out. You don't throw off the kinds of surpluses um, that we you know that we have. Um, you know the the best thing for Canada in some ways is that it's somewhat integrated with the you know with the U.S. with the U.S. economy. But I mean, look at don't look at don't, it, don't go there, Gregor. Don't yeah, I know, but that's a long that that particular argument has yeah. a long and nasty uh, yeah. history in Canada. But I mean, just just for comparison. Our commodity producing economy is enormous, but sometimes you can barely see it because there's so much to the rest of the economy, you know, that we, you know, the production of airplanes and defense industry and, and so forth. So it's, it's very tough to compare any country to the United States. We're just, we're, we're sort of singular and unusual um, in that, in that way. And we have a lot of, we produce a lot of surplus wealth that can be used in just the way that you were you were explaining that, that okay that's very true I, I i don't i don't deny that and and trust me uh volumes have been written by canadian economists about that very thing yeah. that being said this is in my opinion the current energy transition and the economic transformation and industrial transformation that it has triggered it is in the process of triggering in the early stages this is a once in a hundred year opportunity for canada True. And and if we're smart about this, this is an opportunity to build industry, clean energy industry in Canada uh, to True. serve if only we serve the North American market. Right. The United States and a growing Mexican market right. and our domestic market. We could increase the industrial base here significantly. We could increase our prosperity and our wealth significantly, a number of jobs. Uh, good paying, you know, middle class jobs, as the politicians like to say. And but what happens is when you come from a, 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 a history of being hewers of wood and drawers of water, as as we have been, you're very risk averse when you're branching out and when you're, you know, you're considering or somebody's trying to mm -hmm. argue like I do yes. uh, that we should, we should take risks on things like advanced material manufacturing. Now, yes. I don't know, you mentioned the tar sands earlier, and I don't know if you understand, if you're aware, but bitumen has a very unique chemical composition that makes it fantastic for building things. Okay. And there's research underway now that in a couple of years will uh, produce a process that will turn bitumen into carbon fiber precursor. And as part of an, an article I wrote for a magazine, I interviewed one of the uh, carbon U.S. carbon fiber manufacturers from uh, from Missouri. And, and he said, look, we, we know what's going on up in Alberta. And as soon as the, one of, you're ready to go, we will build a plant there because you build the plant next as close to the source of the precursor as you can get. So this carbon fiber, the uh, Alberta Innovates, the agency that's working on it, estimates that it will be half the cost of current carbon fiber. Mm -hmm. now, now, think in terms of how revolutionary that could be for transportation, you know, for oh. your vehicles, you want to lightweight oh. things. Yes. You know, and you can put this carbon fiber in concrete to strengthen it, and you can put it, that has all sorts of applications rather than just making, you know, skis. Or some other yes, material carbon. material right. science is going to be an increasingly significant factor. Absolutely, in, in the energy transition. So this is an example of, of an opportunity that Canada has that it needs to seize and run with it as hard as it can 
to make it a reality. And and I fear that we're not going to do that and we're going to miss out on the opportunities that are being yeah. presented in this very unique time in history. Yeah. But now when I look when I look south of the border, I, the US Inflation Reduction Act to me again is is the Americans deciding that they're going they're not going to be number 2. They they want to be number 1. Well, and you guys are going hard. Well, you make a good point because we we could we in in an alternate universe we could be the same large uh, economy that's throwing off a lot of capital surpluses, but we could also be risk averse. We're not risk averse, but in in another scenario we could be risk averse, and then we just wouldn't pursue any of the, these things uh, anyway, even though we had the wealth. That is somewhat another unusual thing about American culture. We're we're gamblers and we're we're risk takers. And uh, there's still some of that frontier uh, ethos that is still in the in in the culture. Um, I should just mention though that we've spent a long time not investing in ourselves. We're, we've got a huge infrastructure deficit here in the United States. It's really eye-opening to return from Europe and to fly into a U.S. airport and deal with public transportation here. So you know we're we're we've got a lot of catching up to do as as well so i encourage people to be impressed with things like the ira but that's like that's like the first hard cure to a long standing problem that we've still got to we still got to work on do you think the united states will solve it uh well you know there's the old adage about the united states that it it eventually does the right thing after trying every every other failed <laughs> failed route first, right? That is uh, yes, yes, it 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 will. Um, what will happen is momentum will build. So you're you're actually going to develop a new constituency for wind, solar, batteries, and energy technology in a bunch of states that don't currently have those constituencies, and those workers are voters, and they will vote themselves a continuation. Of the route that we're of, of the route that we're going down, it's just a classic, you know, uh, evolutionary uh, path. So yes, I do think, I do think we'll solve these problems. I think we've begun. And one would expect that as that capital begins to flow into the, and I'm thinking of the IRA capital, and then of course uh, crowding in private capital. I mean, that'd be an enormous amount. And I should point out between the Infrastructure Act, the Chips Act. And the IRA, we're talking mm -hmm. over a trillion dollars of, of public capital available by, by 2030. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of infrastructure to be built and a lot of, and that will create uh, some good paying jobs, building bridges and building transmission lines and, and uh, solar farms and, and, and all of that. And it, it just looks to me like the U.S., is ready for the challenge. I mean, there's a lot of talk about you know China, China having the vigor of a of a new empire emerging, and and America is kind of arthritic and scholaric and and you know and maybe can't get its act together. Uh, I think, well, frankly, Canada is so integrated with the U.S. economy. We, we need you guys to get your act together and get this right. But I I kind of think you will. I, I think we're seeing that leadership emerge. Well, you know, we also have a new exciting uh, department in the Department of Energy called the Loan Program Office. Oh, Jigger Shaw. 
big fan Jim. of the jigger shop. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like we've got a new venture capital uh, arm of the U S government and they're just, they're investing in all sorts of things. They just invested in uh, JB Straubel's uh, Redwood materials, or it was sort of a pre-funding agreement. The The actual investment hasn't come yet, but it's the ramp up to, to an investment. And, you know, that's all about the raw materials and the rare earth materials for, for battery manufacturing and the recycling of those, of those materials. Yeah. You know, Jap Japan's economy scared American policymakers and economists in the, starting in the late seventies and the early eighties, American policymakers got really frightened uh, that, that Japan had built very rapidly this uh, powerful manufacturing base. China may have done something similar to thinking the prodding of thinking here in the States, because, you know, uh, there were times during the last decade when China's ability to simply do, run a command uh, concept and say, build so much winds, build so much solar, suddenly that looked more effective than what we were, than what we were doing. So we, we may have, we may have made a response uh, to, to that. And, and I think that that's, you know, what's unfolding and what's exciting Markham is that, we're just at the front end of this trillion dollars and the and the multiplier effect of, of venture capital that's actually coming from the government sort of seed the seed money phenomena. So, yeah, we're we're pretty pleased with ourselves here in the United <laughs> States. But I must point out, we've not been pleased with ourselves for some time. So it's a it's nice for the first time in a while to, to be able to say we're pleased with ourselves. Well, my Canadian listeners can can look ahead to next month's federal budget because the finance minister, Christian Freeland, a former journalist, if you will. Yes. You, yeah. you probably, yeah, you probably oh, saw yeah. her. Sure. I, I first ran into her years ago when Bill Maher watching her uh, on with Matt Tia, Tia, Tiabi, uh Maybe. talking about various things. And now, now she's running, basically running the country. Yeah. Uh, and, and she is a big fan of what she calls real muscular industrial policy. Some okay. of it, some of it was uh, released in the fall economic statement. Uh, but more than that, uh, she has said it's the big, the meat of the, of the program is coming next month in the, in the, uh, in the annual budget. Okay. And so we, we were going to watch that with great interest because the, the government, the prime minister, Justin Trudeau, uh, Freeland, they, many of the cabinet ministers have all said, we, Canada needs to match the IRA. It has to have oh, some okay. answer to the IRA. Okay. Because otherwise we're going to be frozen out of this this opportunity. So I think it's well, heartening. It's heartening for Canadians to hear. Well, you know, their government gets it. At least their their Cana the federal government gets it. Not all the provincial governments do. Uh, but yeah. So uh, we I'll let you know next month whether we we have cause for okay. optimism well, here. There's long been a constituency of people that have said one of the most important reasons for the United States to be a leader in policy is that it affects what other countries uh, do and how they, they're influenced by the United States. I've somewhat been lukewarm on that idea, but it looks like it looks like the IRA really does is having an impact. It's gotten a reaction in Europe and I'm learning from you, it's getting a reaction in Canada. So that's great. Glad to hear it. Well, let's wrap up our conversation, Gregor, okay. uh, this way. Um, I'll I'll sort of lay out my my hypothesis. Um, the the energy transition 
got its start. It has long roots. And some, in some cases, they go back to the 70s, first commercial solar panels, the 80s, the first commercial wind turbines, lithium-ion battery in 91 or 92, somewhere around there. Okay. Many of the technologies that now are powering the energy transition have been around for 20, 30, 40 years or more. They're now mature. They're on the part of the S-curve where they've, they've passed their inflection point, and now they're scaling. And they're starting to push the old technologies out, and and we'll see that in a much more disruptive way over the next uh, over the next two to five years, uh, because the process I think is really just getting underway now. But here's the kicker: there's the the really obvious, you know, the the popular technologies that we talk about, like wind, solar, and EVs. There are so many other enabling technologies that don't get any attention grid enhancing technologies and microgrids and you know ai and mm-hmm. all sorts of other amazing technologies mm-hmm. that in that are enabling enabling the, the energy transition and all these other technologies to to reach their potential and and i think that it's the confluence of all of these technologies together at this moment in time that's going to propel us forward at a rate that will be dizzying uh, as the tw- the 2020s are the decade of disruption in in this energy transition. And it's this decade where we'll see it really begin to accelerate. And we'll look back on, on 20, you know, 2023 when we get to 2030 and marvel at how much has changed. And by the time we get to 2040, we'll look back on 2030 and marvel how much again has changed. So I think that the energy transition now is a fait accompli. It's, it, is. it is going to triumph. That's the right. Only, the only question now is pace. The rate. And That's yeah, right. Exactly right. And the the countries that, that understand that will be the winners. And the ones that are still, you know, if they're like Toyota and Honda and they're still dipping, just beginning to dip their toe in the EV pool, you know, they're going to pay a penalty. So that's my hypothesis. I'll, I'll turn it over to you for, give us your take. Yeah, I, I agree with that hypothesis. And because I agree with it, I think that the next challenge that's going to be clarified is that the because the rate of transfer, of transformation in electricity, global electricity is going to be so rapid, it's going to increasingly highlight the dependency we have and that we've built up over a long period of time on natural gas in, in, in industry and heating and on oil and transportation. Now, I have had a thesis for a couple of years now that, that oil demand growth would stall and, and not go any further around this time. I see that British Petroleum uh, now pretty much has the same uh, thesis. Uh, when you hear oil people on television, they're often asked, tell me about the growth. They skirt the question and they tell you about dependency. They're really, <laughs> they're really making a dependency argument. Yeah. They're no longer really making a growth, a growth argument. You mentioned some of that at the beginning of our interview. Yes, you can make a dependency argument about materials and petrochemicals, plastics and, and things like that. But where's the growth? Uh, the growth is over. Um, but growth being over doesn't necessarily convert immediately to decline and i think i think we're going to become increasingly bifurcated where this rapid exciting technological 
te technologically led revolution is occurring in global power and electricity with lots of transportation demand coming over to that system as, as well, which would be is quite significant. And then we're going to just be staring at the lumpy, uh, you know, sad parts of the economy where we're still stuck with natural gas and oil, not growing, no demand growth, but not really declining much, if, if at all, either. And so, you know, I, I would like it if we would focus on that probe on that problem right now, rather than waiting till it becomes more clear and obvious, because I think it's going to be more clear and obvious. So a little bit of a tale of two cities is would be my near term outlook. But just one more thing. I agree with you, this is going to be a spectacular decade. And in terms of emissions, it needs to be a spectacular decade. Every day in 2023 has an enormous impact on every day in 2033. The more we can do now, it's like it's like the theory of compounding. We compound our actions now for 10 years from now. So we desperately need to move even faster than we're going. I just want to close out by pointing out to Energy Talks listeners that uh, probably a couple of months ago, uh, it was late in 2022, I did an interview with Kingsmill Bond of Rocky Mountain Institute, and he talked about their theory of fossil fuel uh, peak, uh, yeah. plateau, and decline. Yeah. And this idea that once you've hit the, the peak, you don't decline right away. You you kind of bump along in this plateau. Right. It could be five years, 10 years. Yeah. We'll have to wait and see how long the plateau lasts. But then eventually, the, when the decline comes, it comes pretty pretty quickly. And I think that lines up very nicely with uh, with the point that you were making, Gregor. So look, this has been a, a, an amazing conversation. Really enjoyed it. And thank you very much. And we will uh, we'll have you back on as soon as we can. Thank you so much for the conversation, Markham. I really enjoyed it. And all best to you up in BC. Well, and all best to you down in Portland, Oregon. Okay, then. Okay.